Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 11, The Bribe. If Creature could escape a lake full of inferi, Harry was confident that the capture of Mundungus would take a few hours at most, and he prowled the house all morning in a state of high anticipation. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Before we get started, we just want to let everybody know that we've done a little bit of a Patreon shakeup. So head over to patreon.com forward slash Harry Potter Sacred Text and see what our new perks are, including something Draco Malfoy related. A little something for you, Casper. A big thanks to our patrons this week. We've got Anna Bonnet, Sean Olson Dois, Christy Mitchell, Amelia Soros, and Yaren Goldstein. Thank you so much to each of you. And to the Salt Lake Squids in Salt Lake City, Utah, run by Janelle Edwards, who are our fabulous local group. You can find them and all our local groups on harrypottersacredtext.com. And many of them are meeting digitally. So it's the perfect time to join and check it out. Absolutely. You don't even need to get in the car. We also would like to think we put out a call for people to work the way guillotine in <laughs> one of our reviews. And we would like to say that Claire Mill, too, did a brilliant job. And let me read you this incredible review. <laughs> this podcast brings me so much joy. I love the spiritual practices, the careful consideration of the books, and the laughter along the way. <laughs> when I feel a bit like I'm stuck in a guillotine, which who doesn't feel that way sometimes... Vanessa and Casper and the team provide a breath of fresh air. Well, thank you. And the more creative that you can get with the word guillotine, the more likely it is that we will read your reviews as well. Casper, it is your turn to tell a story. And what do you have for us today? So 
like many of you, I assume, the last few months have been rather unusual. When March, I think it was 11th, came around, Sean and I were planning to go away for a weekend to visit friends in Utah. And I was like, I don't think we're going to go away this weekend. Like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. And as the days crept towards the weekend, I was like, hell no. And so on that Friday, I started counting the days. Every day on my laptop kind of desktop, I would change a number to keep a mark of the days of quarantine. And so very quickly, one week went into another. And there I was, day 27, day 48, day 69, day 88. And throughout that time, I was really reminded of a spiritual practice in the Jewish tradition called counting the Omer, where Jews count the days from the end of Passover to the beginning of the Harvest Festival of Shavuot. And the joy of counting, although originally very practical about marking a time when you would harvest barley, later was interpreted in all sorts of wonderful mystical ways. And I learned from my new friend, Rabbi Emily Cohen, that you get to focus on a different existential question or or a question of great value as you pass the time. And so I said to myself, okay, I'm going to count 100 days of quarantine as my bridge into what will be a new normal. As the days passed, I, and I'm sure all of us quickly realized this wasn't going to change properly until there was a vaccine. Certainly in the United States, where the policies from the federal government have been extremely poor and contradictory, I realized very quickly that we were going to be living in this new normal. And so for me, counting up to 100 days and then saying, okay, I've arrived here, this is the world as it is, was kind of a way in which to accept that the normal that I knew is not the normal that I'm going to be in for the foreseeable future. And it reminded me that normal (laughs) can change. And that to some extent, whether we want to or not, we are very adaptable creatures as human beings. And that it's also therefore an invitation to consider what we think of as normal now as open to change, that the things that seem unchangeable could change. So that's what I really want to dig into as we think about this theme of normalcy today. So Casper, what's normal for me is beating you in the 30-second recap, and that is unchangeable. (laughs) All right, bring it on. Your turn to go first. Count me in. All right. Chapter 11. In 30 seconds. Three, two, one. Ron is being really annoying with the Deluminator and then Lupin shows up and is like, take me with you. And they're like, "Uh, why? And he's like, because I don't want to be a dad because I have shame. And he and Harry get into a big fight and Lupin hurts Harry and then Lupin storms out and um, Dementors are following them and everybody's really worried about that. Not Dementors, Death Eaters are following them and everyone's really worried about it. And then Creature finally comes back with Mundungus, and it turns out that he had taken the locket and that Umbridge took it from Mundungus Fletcher. That's everything. Do you want to skip? I feel like we covered it. I'm not sure we need one. Let's just do it for fun. (laughs) All right. Will you count me in? On your mark. Get set. Go. 
So um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are waiting around for Creature to come back, but Creature, like, isn't coming back, and Harry's starting to get freaked out because this should have only taken a couple of minutes. And then um, suddenly someone comes in. They're like, oh, my gosh, who is it? Because there's people outside the house now, and they're guarding it. Um, And then it turns out to be Lupin, and we think, like, oh, yay, and Hermione lights a fire. And we're like, the gang is back together. But no, because Harry cannot deal and, like, gets super angry and just insults Lupin over and over again, making him run away. And then Creature comes back and is like, I know where it is. With his Mundungus, you can punch him. Okay, we have to jump in at the Lupin thing because I'm not going to be able to let it go for more than two seconds. It's so intense. It is so intense. And I'm genuinely bewildered. Like, is this normal behavior? Okay, I'm not bewildered. I'm infuriated that Lupin hits Harry because Lupin is the one who pulls out his wand. Harry says all of these things. That's true. Harry is very triggered by Lupin not wanting to be around for his child and and goes on on a tirade that we can talk about. But Lupin's response is to pull his wand and strike Harry and have Harry fall so far back that Harry hits his head. And then Lupin leaves after striking Harry. And then Hermione and Ron continue to blame and shame Harry for Harry's actions. Mm. And I was just wondering if the reason that everyone reacts like this is because they know that physical violence is sort of normal for Harry, that he has been abused in the Dursley house, that he has been confronted with Voldemort, that he is like always in pain with his scar. Like if Ron or Hermione got hit by Lupin, Would this be taken in the same way? Would this just be like, how dare you act like that? You sure had it coming. This is wildly inappropriate behavior from Lupin. This is violent. He is striking a former student. And like someone who was barely not a child has only been an adult for like weeks. Why is anyone blaming Harry? That's a really compelling point. And I am embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that I didn't even think of that question. Because you're right. If it had been Hermione or Ron, no way would this have been the the reaction of like, oh, just another day in Harry Potter's life. Like, this is the first time that I've read the books and noticed this. I just read this book like six months ago. And in no way was I like, Lupin hits Harry. This is the first time that it struck me as like so outlandishly horrible. And I do. I think that there are just certain people's bodies that we just are like, okay with being abused a lot. And sometimes we put them in uniform. Sometimes we're like, it's a soldier's body. Mm. Sometimes we put them in a black hoodie. Sometimes we put them in a, in a scantily clad outfit. Like we're okay with certain bodies having violence done upon them. And Harry's body is apparently just one of those bodies now. It's just normal. You know, what I'm thinking about is the narratives in American culture of the strong black woman, that there's this sense that somehow... Black women especially have this sort of superhuman strength of survival skills or or a pain tolerance when that's not true. It's just that somehow our culture and whiteness has made black women endure more and excused itself by saying, oh, but they're strong. And I feel like that's what's happening with Harry is that like, it's not even a question at this point. That's what's so powerful about what you're helping me see in the text is that no one is responding in the scene, (laughs) right? It's just become so normal. And I guess what we're taking away from this point maybe is that normal does not mean okay. It's just some wild 
situation that has become so often repeated that it seems that everyone agrees to just move on. And people blame him for his pain, Mm. right? And they're not trying to. But he doesn't want to tell Hermione when his scar hurts because she's going to say, no, you're supposed to block it out. Right. And I feel that, right? Like as someone with a chronic disease, I know that people are going to, if I tell them that I don't feel well, not everybody, but a lot of people are going to be like, well, are you doing X, Y, and Z? Are you? And it's like, I can do all the right things. And it doesn't matter, right? Like, it's not my fault. This is just a part of my life. And it's just a fact of my life. And it feels the same with Harry. Like, he doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want to hear Hermione say, block it. It's like, well, it's my dreams. I can't. Of course, Harry's not reaching out. People are failing him. Understandably, right? Within normal limits of failing. I'm not judging we're all bad at taking care of each other and all any of us can do is try our best. And I, and I do believe Ron and Hermione try, but in this chapter, we are seeing them fail. Gosh, let's take a step back to the beginning of the chapter, because for me, from the very beginning, the sense of normal is disrupted. The first thing that we notice is that the house is being watched. There's two Death Eaters Which Lupin later says, listen, there's Death Eaters everywhere. Like, this doesn't mean they know you're here. But for the trio inside, it immediately puts everything on edge. It's unsettling. And so it doesn't feel normal. And it even played out for me in seeing, as soon as Lupin arrived, Hermione goes to light the fire in the kitchen. And I was like, you know what? If this had been normal times, that fire would have been on. This house would have started to feel like a home. And so you can just see both on the outside and on the inside of the physical space, the way in which it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel like home. And the way in which our outer landscape can make our inner feeling also feel discomforted. Yeah. I mean, I remember thinking that we get used to those things all the time, right? I used to be so careful about making sure that location services was never on on my phone. And then it's like, for long enough, enough apps don't work to their full capacity, where eventually I'm just like, okay, when app is in use, okay, all the time. And being surveilled, anything like that, we just allow it to become the new normal in our lives. And so, yeah, I mean, what we have to be doing is setting up strategic places to reflect so we can say, oh, that's actually something like I've been a frog in water that I've just been letting get hotter and hotter and hotter. And every once in a while, I have to stop and take the temperature and be like, wait, 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 is this water safe for me? And I'm wondering about that in terms of the difference between normal and legal, Right. Mm. Because we see a transition happen here between something being normal and something being legal. We have an an institution in our country of how to question things that are laws. Right. You take things to the Supreme Court and the Supreme mm. Court can decide whether or not that should still be a law. But we don't have these cultural touchstones where we get to sort of go up before, you know, vulture and be like, should this still be normal? <laughs> right. It's like a much more iterative process. But we see that explicitly with the legal mandate that students go to Hogwarts. It has been normal that children in the United Kingdom go to Hogwarts, right? Like that that has been normal that wizard children do that for centuries and most children do. But now that it's legal, something different has been set into action. And I'm wondering if you could help me suss out what that difference is between normal and legal. 
why is it so sinister if it's been normal all along? If somebody was like, Vanessa, it's now legally mandated that you have breakfast. I'd be like, great. I love breakfast. <laughs> but, but there is something sinister about taking a norm and making it law. Well, the question at stake is about control because education is not values neutral, right? And if we're mandating people to receive a certain kind of education at a certain place that is controlled by the ministry, even if you wanted to have a different history, right? If you wanted a different set of values, you can no longer get it. And so there's nothing wrong with having cultural norms, right? Like in some ways we need them to greet each other on the street in a certain way, to do business together, to celebrate festivals, right? Like that in itself is not wrong. I think the danger is when it's mandated, when there's no choice, and certainly who is controlling the creation of the norm and to what end. Because we know that this is not about changing literacy rates of wizarding children who are not in school. This is about enforcing an ideological perspective on the next generation of which is wizards and all, all magical children. Yeah. And I love that making these informal norms formal immediately makes clear who the decider is. That's right? right. Whereas other norms, we can choose to break. And there's some beauty in the malleability of those norms. It used to be a norm that when you were walking down the street, you tr stopped and chatted with a neighbor and that was a sign of respect. And now it's a sign of respect to cross the street to get further away from your neighbor, right? right? And so there's something beautiful about the fact that these norms aren't law, that it's not you must stop and stand within three feet to talk to your neighbor. And I love that whole monologue in the text too, where Lupin is like, going down and explaining all of the sort of tentacles of tyranny that Voldemort is doing, right? Where he's like, it's in the ministry, it's in the education system, it's in the, the soft power of the fact that they no longer have to worry about breaking small laws. It is in the newspaper. Like, he, he really is going through and showing us all of the different ways that Voldemort is interrupting normalcy or life as it was just a few weeks ago. The thing that really struck me as he was doing that is the way in which it's not new, right? Some of the attitudes that have now become formal policy or law, I don't know, they were kind of latent. They were underneath the water and now they've come above water. So just the ways in which, for example, like anti-muggle hate speech was something that wasn't celebrated, but it also wasn't cracked down, right? It wasn't illegal. And now that has kind of made space in some way for anti-muggle policies like the Muggle-born register. And we know that that is going to make space for the next thing, which is like an anti-muggle world. So I just, I just saw this kind of encroaching or the growth of this anti-muggle worldview starting in language, going into policy and, and growing into becoming something that's going to be deadly, already is. Yeah, which sp speaks to the heart of the matter, which is that that kind of hate speech should have never been normalized, should That's have right. never been accepted, right? That we should have been calling each other into question much sooner so that it never could have gotten to this place. I mean, what's what's interesting in all of this as well is that, you know, we can look at the laws because there's an active agent behind it, like someone is introducing a bill or there's a new law in, in the courts that has been decided. But the use of language, for example, or the way in which we encounter one another on the street, like who decided that? How did that come about? It's often much less transparent about where that normal came from. And I think it's an invitation for us to really interrogate the kind of language we use, the way in which we 
you know, think about everyday habits and behaviors that might not obviously have an author, but still have an impact. Yeah. And I just want to put in my application to be the future author of Alt Norms. <laughs> I think I'd be really good at it. Honestly, it would work for, for a lot of me for a lot of the time. Yeah, right? <laughs> so wh where else do you see this theme of normalcy in the text? One of the other big places that I saw it was in this long excerpt from Rita Skeeter's book about Dumbledore. And what we read about is a bunch of things that I think could be normal, but once they are put in writing, sound sinister. The fact that Dumbledore has a sister that people don't understand what she had, what happened to her, that's shrouded in mystery and protection of a child. Like, that is all normal. Like, I don't want to tell you what's going on exactly in my family. It's not my story to tell. It's not a secret that we're ashamed of, but it is something that out of respect, we don't want to talk about publicly. Many of us have family secrets that are shrouded in secrecy and there's toxicity around that secrecy. But for a lot of people, we have that secrecy that isn't about secrecy. It's about confidentiality and respect and privacy. Mm. And that is not only normal, but virtuous. And yet, when you put it in a newspaper, when you say it in a certain way, it leaves the realm of normalcy and it becomes insidious and it becomes um, titillating. It was just so interesting to me that you can reframe something that's so normal, which is just basic privacy, into being something so different. What did you make of that whole backstory as it's getting further and further elucidated for us or becoming more and more opaque to us, but we spend more time <laughs> with the story? The thing that I felt mostly was honestly just the loneliness that Ariana must have been experiencing. The fact that she is, you know, at home on her own, really only apparently being allowed out at nighttime in a supervised walk around the garden. Just the way in which for her... That is normal in the same way that we saw for Harry at the beginning of book one, that living under a staircase was normal. And that made me very sad, honestly. Um, yeah. No, that's a beautiful way to look at this as an invitation to imagine what Ariana's life was like. And yeah, I think that that's true of all of our childhoods. That to some extent, coming out of childhood is an acknowledgement that what was, was. It's mm. not that what was was normal or the ideal. It just is what you, it was the air that you were breathing. And that can be both ways, right? I mean, I thought that everyone had an arts festival in their village and that of course everyone went to sing to cows on Christmas Eve and that we all danced around maypoles, right? Like <laughs> That was that was part of my growing up. And so to realize like, oh, this was unusual, both was like, oh, I'm weird. Uh, let's not talk about it. But also like, oh, wow, I really had so much that maybe other people had never experienced. So sometimes it's also realizing like the gifts that you have or the loveliness privileges. of an experience, the privileges. Yeah, absolutely. That those are not normal. The other place that I, honestly, my compassion kind of extended as I was thinking about this theme of normalcy was when Mundungus comes back. Me too. I was like, hashtag disapparate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he he's like, I never promised to be a hero. Why did you put me in this position? You know, and he's not saying it to Harry per se, but it's definitely a critique of Mad-Eye Moody. Because Mad-Eye had put Mundungus in a situation where we can want him to do better, but like, can we expect him to be different? No. Not only that, it 
is not normal that Moody basically kidnapped him and blackmailed him to risk his life. That's horrible. And I feel like he has great integrity in just saying it to Harry's face. He's like, I like you, mate, but I'm not going to risk my life for you. I was like, that's fair. That is fair. (laughs) Do you know what part of why I'm okay with Mundungus is because he has not put himself in an official position in which he is going to be hurting kids, right? Like, I think that part of the problem with Snape, for example, is that he's a teacher. He's in a position of power. If he was just sort of a Grinch about children and hated kids, but like worked at a chemicals factory and went home every day and like didn't have his own kids and was just sort of a jerk to like his nieces and nephews, whatever, right? (laughs) But it's that legalization of his role in people's lives, that formal relationship that means that people like Neville are going to have to be subjugated under his abuse. That's the problem, right? So certain things are normal. And then when you put them in a different context, they become unacceptable. I'm just seeing that like biopic of Snape getting on the bus, going to the factory, right? He's brought his own lunch. Like that's an alternative story that might have (laughs) been. Snape is Walter White in Breaking Bad. Exactly. He's good at potions. (laughs) One of the things that has really struck me in this chapter that really echoed a horrible situation that we're in right now with J.K. Rowling's kind of long essay, the transphobic essay that she published recently that we'll talk much more about next week, was the way in which the ministry at this point is using this kind of pseudoscientific language or a pseudoscientific narrative about muggles to make it normal that people should be on this muggle-born registry, right? They want to do research into how have muggles gained magical powers. And there's already an embedded argument within it, which is that the hypothesis is that they've somehow stolen magic. And so as an identity, as a a muggle-born person, that you've already done something intrinsically wrong. And and the use of science specifically to make it seem respectable or normal, it just had such a haunting quality for me in the way in which the kind of transphobic narrative of of, of scientific essentialism are being wielded right now. Wow, that is a brilliant comparison that I hadn't thought of. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So something that struck me, and I'm going to pretend that this is under the theme because it struck me as an abnormal thing to say, is that Harry is looking at this picture of Kendra and the children Dumbledore. And says that Kendra reminds him of photos of Native Americans that he had seen. And I was wondering if you maybe had like a a keyhole into that very, very strange and offensive comment. Maybe that there's like a British understanding of what Native American photo representation is. Yeah, I mean, if if we were having a conversation that isn't about a sacred text, right, where we're not ever interested in authorial intent, and if we were to peel away that layer and say, well, what is the authorial intent? To me, this would be an example of, oh, it's book seven. She's been criticized for not having racially diverse characters. She's trying to like... Shoehorn it in. Absolutely. It's total tokenism, right? And yeah. it's not even tokenism done well because it's just like alluded to in the imagination of this 17-year-old white boy looking at a photograph of someone he doesn't know. But So that on her next press <laughs> junket, she could be like, look, Dumbledore exactly. is descendant of some sort of Cherokee tribe. <laughs> exactly. But- because that's not what we're doing, I can't say that. <laughs> and we have to we have to try and think about not about authorial intent, but we have to think about what could it mean. And I think honestly, all we're left with is question marks dancing around the page. And sometimes that's all we've got. <laughs> So Vanessa, our spiritual practice this week is Chavruta, the great Jewish tradition where we center the text in a conversation with you and me, and we form this kind of sacred triangle. And in the questions I ask and the questions you respond with and the text, in the middle of that triangle sits the truth. And we're going to try and get there as best we can, knowing that it's always probably just out of reach. The question that really struck me on this reading, as Lupin comes into the house, I felt this like melting of anxiety. I felt safe. I was like, someone is here to help me. (laughs) You know, I was like, (laughs) I was like, I've been dreaming of this. Dad's here and he's going to make everything okay. And sometimes you just need that because life is hard. And the question I have is like, why not bring Lupin with them? You know, they have this whole argument about why it's their mission But really what's underneath them very quickly becomes very clear is that Harry is having a reaction about much more than this situation. And it's about his own experience of abandonment and the way in which he sees Lupin abandoning his his future child and his wife. But is that part of him that's also, and I guess this is my answer, I think there's also a part of him that's scared of leading Lupin without a plan. I think there's something exposing for him 
of having this mentor, having this teacher, where the roles are now reversed. Dumbledore has given Harry the mission, not Lupin, and that he would have to be in charge of someone who's usually been in charge of him. And that that's part of what's so unsettling about this situation. Oh, that's so interesting. I love that theory and I feel for him, right? Like that's part of why Stephanie Paulsell in my normal life is a friend. But the first time we had her in the studio, I literally couldn't say her name or title. (laughs) I remember. (laughs) I like kept messing up because I was so aware. I was like, I'm not the leader. You are the leader, right? Like it's so stressful to have someone who you respect and admire and see as a teacher, like see you at work, right? You're just like, no, I'm the kid. I love that theory. I don't think that that's it. I think that Harry has become a soldier of Dumbledore's mission Mm -hmm. and that when you are a soldier, you have to psychologically siphon off the possibility of questioning orders. Mm. Otherwise, you won't do it. Otherwise, where does it stop? Otherwise, why can't you also tell Molly? And then Molly's at risk. And especially when you don't understand the war, when you're like, I don't really know why we're here, but. I have committed to following orders. And I think that the the psychological tax that would have to happen if he started making minor exceptions would just be too high. And so I'm not sure that Dumbledore would have a problem with Lupin coming along. Right. Separate the Tonks situation, right? Like, or let's say that Tonks was like, I'm pregnant, but I want you to go. And like, I can't be out in the field as an or, so you go and fight for both of us, right? Let's say it's Tonks sanctioned. I do think that there's a really good chance that Dumbledore sends back an owl being like, yes, like take all the help you can get. He was a great teacher. He'll be a great advocate. But in the absence of that, I think that Harry has just decided to be a soldier for good and bad. That's really compelling. And I think that it creates a lot of psychological security for him because it means a lot of mistakes that he makes aren't his fault, right? They're Dumbledore's fault. But it also puts this like really oppressive limitation on what he can and can't do in terms of creativity. I'm so compelled by this, Vanessa. And I really like the idea that by limiting who he's allowing in, I think part of the story that he's telling himself is also he's limiting the damage he can do to the people he loves, right? We know that that's one of his biggest fears is that people are going to die for him and too many people have already died. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about what would happen if Dumbledore was alive. Because on the other hand, All through Dumbledore's life, he didn't tell anyone about this. And so there is also a sort of continued secrecy that I wonder if that's partly what's modeled to Harry. And so Harry feels like one way in which he gets to honor Dumbledore is by kind of continuing that legacy of of secrecy. Well, and we know, we find out in this very scene how seriously Harry takes the idea of trying to live up to the memory of people, even the memory of people who he can't possibly understand, Mm -hmm. like James, right? And he acknowledges, like, at one point he didn't understand James, and so he reached out to Lupin to help him understand James. And at this moment, he's trying to hold Lupin to account to try to be more like his understanding of Lupin. And so I think that that theory is also very compelling, Casper, that he's like Dumbledore lived in secrecy. And so out of honor for him, I have to live in secrecy. 
And I think that that also makes sense to me. And now I'm probably way over armchair pathologizing (laughs) Harry, but he so profoundly lacked mentors and people to look up to and people to try to emulate for so much of his life that I think that now that he's found some people, he doesn't know what to do. So he's just going to try to copy the people who he admires, which I think is a great first step, right? That's true. That's true. Like, if you're going to try to write your first novel, just try to copy someone who wrote a great novel, right? right. Like, these are the the right first steps when you don't know what to do. To emulate someone you admire, I think, is a great instinct. The final reason I might add to this cauldron of, like, why not bring Lupin with him is something that I came across in my research for the book when I was thinking about strategies of connection. And one of the things that Brene Brown talks about so much is that how literally our brain chemistry changes when we're isolated. And that an invitation that would feel like, oh, hey, do you want to go get an ice cream? When you feel connected is a very different experience from a text that says, hey, do you want to get an ice cream? When you felt lonely or isolated, especially over time. Because what starts to happen in our brains is that we start to interpret any reaching out like an invitation to get an ice cream, as somehow duplicitous. Like, are they just going to joke with me and not show up at the ice cream van? Like, how, how is this a trick? is what happens in our brain. And so I wonder if at this point, Harry is just afraid and isolated, even with Hermione and Ron, that any invitation like the one that Lupin is offering him, his brain is just rejecting before he's even had a moment to think about the implications of, well, how would it make it better? How is this person who's demonstrated his love and commitment to me and is an excellent presence to solve a problem like this, he doesn't even have the kind of mental space to explore that as an option. Yeah, I I really wish he did. I wish he was like, yup, great. Come as a wolf, be super cute and curl up in front of the fire. Can't wait. <laughs> but yeah, I'm so grateful that you brought us this Haruta question because it really helps me understand why Harry says no, which was not instinctual to me at all. I'm like more people for the camping trip, more fun, more (laughs) s'mores. Bring s'mores, exactly. (laughs) Let's hear from Ava for our voicemail this week. Hey, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and everyone at the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Ava, and I absolutely love your podcast. I found out about it around the end of May of 2020, and since I've been binging episodes, my goal is to catch up with you guys before you finish the seventh book. I recently have finished listening to all of this book five episodes and your episode about inheritance really stuck with me. When I think about inheritance, it reminds me of a portrait hanging in my grandmother's house of a family ancestor wearing his Confederate army uniform surrounded by the text of his diary entries from the war. Personally, I am really uncomfortable with this painting, as are most of my cousins, because even though my grandparents are by no means prejudiced and have no ill meanings hanging this portrait, I imagine what would happen if I ever were to bring someone to that house and how ugly a situation that could turn into. And although I don't think we need to burn it in the dead of night and consider it, you know, this great shame that we should never talk about, I... I don't think we should display it either, and my idea would be to do something like donate it to a museum. Thinking about this portrait reminds me of the Horcruxes, or even of the portrait of Sirius's mom in Grimmauld Place. So my question for you guys is, 
Is it ever okay to display these kinds of objects with dark backgrounds to acknowledge the history? Or are we just perpetuating the cycle of oppression? Thank you guys so much for all you do on the podcast. I absolutely love it. And I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the episodes and catching up with you guys. Bye. Ava, thank you so much for that beautiful and thoughtful voicemail. And I'm really glad that you're having that conversation in your family. I know sometimes it's it's not an easy one, but it's a really important one. It reminds me so much about my questions about my family's history, especially in the context of colonialism. My grandfather grew up in Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony for many decades. And the way in which it's talked about in Holland is like, oh yeah, that time when all these Dutch people were out in the in Indonesia. And I'm like, no, we occupied it. Like we, we pillaged it. You know, like the language even in which we describe that part of our history is so challenging. And the thing for me, Ava, that's been a real nut to crack, and I haven't solved it, is what is my responsibility now as someone who has that history? And so the kind of reckoning, I think, that we need to do in our families about what reparations are necessary in my context, that the language that we use, the way in which we think about our connection to that physical place in my case, I think you're inviting all of us to reckon, especially those of us who are white or who have that history, to reckon with it and not just let this pass by. And Ava, I completely hear you on saying that your grandparents have this prejudice item in their house, but they themselves are not prejudiced. And I will just say that if I went to somebody's house and their grandparents had some sort of Nazi thing up in their house, and then they said to me, well, it's just because it's our family history, but we don't believe this, I would still feel very unsafe and as though that is a hateful item. And I do think that most people really experience the Confederate flag the same way that I experience the swastika. And so those are two things that are easy for the owners of those pieces of um, propaganda to separate the item from the intention. But for the people who see those as violence, the impact is not as those two things being separate. I would be really offended. That's so helpful, Vanessa, because I think you're helping us remember the difference between intention and impact and that what matters is impact, not our intentions. Yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Stop. 
Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Casper, who would you like to bless this week? The first thing I want to say is like, sometimes we think about Harry Potter as like, yay, comfortable escape. (laughs) Not anymore, people. (laughs) You know, we are in these books at a point where freaking fascist states are being shaped, right? Like, and I know that sometimes what we want from these books is comfort, but it's not comfortable. And so the first thing I want to say is like, bless you, listeners, for sticking with us as we ask these big questions of the books, because I think it's really important. And with that, <laughs> the blessing I want to give is to is to Scrimger. Uh, we learn in this chapter that he dies. He's, he's tortured and killed. And what I want to bless him for is the fact that he does not reveal Harry's whereabouts, even under torture. And I in no way want to criticize anyone who under torture would reveal things because my God. And there are studies that show that people actually reveal false information under torture, right? No doubt. Just to make it stop. Absolutely. No judgment of torture victims. My God, hell no. But but I want to bless him for the way in which he has been dogged about the fight. We may have disagreed with the way he's gone about it. He may have manipulated Harry in ways we really don't like. But he has always stood against, both as an aura and as minister, against the world that Voldemort is trying to build. And he is a soldier in the, in the front lines of the war against evil. And I want to bless him for that. How about you, Vanessa? Oh, I just want to echo it. I mean, he's so problematic, right? With like allowing Stan Shumpike to have been a scapegoat. But yeah, the fact that his last interaction with Harry was so antagonistic. And yet at the end of the day, he knows that Harry's on the right side of the fight and wouldn't give up information. I I found it incredibly moving as well. I want to bless Tonks. Yes. She's pregnant and maybe she's really happy about it and maybe she's not. I think one of the things we're reminded about in terms of normalcy in this chapter is that the sort of social norms around pregnancy announcements is to wish good cheer and Mm. to say congratulations when I think that a lot of reproductive justice advocates would really encourage us to have the first reaction be and how do you feel about that because pregnancy is not always good news. And I'm really concerned about her. I mean, her husband is obviously having some big existential crisis, but 
Her parents were just tortured. She has been training her whole life to be an aura in this fight. And apparently because of her pregnancy, she isn't out on the front lines in the same way that she would be. And I would imagine that even if you really wanted a child before Voldemort took over the ministry, now that Voldemort has taken over the ministry, you might have very different feelings about your child's future. And so I would just imagine that she's at minimum having a lot of feelings, but one of them being profound fear. And so I want to offer a blessing to Tonks and also to every person who's had mixed feelings about a pregnancy, an abortion, a child. These are not just pieces of good news. And so I just want to offer a blessing for your ambivalence. Mm. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and join our Facebook common room to chat with other listeners about this episode. Or you can come and join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. We've just switched up our perks and some of them are really cute and exciting if I do say so myself. You can always leave us, and by us I mean Casper, a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. And... It's just a few weeks from now, but July 26th to August 2nd, we are hosting an amazing immersive online summer camp. And I have put together an incredible slate of faculty talking about the most amazing things. I'm so excited to attend, let alone participate. So I hope that a lot of you join us. You can learn more at harrypottersacredtext.com. And I'm so excited and proud about this camp that we have put together. Next week, we are doing a very special OWL episode with our friend Jackson Bird and featuring voicemails from our trans and non-binary listeners, which I'm really, really looking forward to. And we thank you for your patience as we responded to J.K. Rowling's tweets and essay. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. And our music as ever is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Boll. We're distributed by Acast. Thank you so much to Ava for this week's voicemail. And as ever to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Purcell. Thank you, everyone. We'll look forward to being with you again next week. Bye. Mandungus is like not a bad guy. He's a little bit of a bad guy. He's Why? a little bit of a bad guy. Oh my God. I have like almost no problem with anything he does. Snape is a much worse guy. Do you know who's never cruel to Neville? Mundungus. Mundungus. <laughs> He's like, mate, I can get you some really good flowers. Do you, do you want some illegal plants? I've got a good deal. <laughs> <laughs>